You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 26th of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, campaigning for the EU elections in Brexit, Britain is underway and going about as non-stupidly as might be expected. My guests Paige Reynolds, Augustin Machelari and Daniel Bates will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Spain's imminent election and the sagacity or otherwise of holding them on weekends, ideas for rebuilding Notre Dame, several of which look worse than restarting the fire, and what does a country do with a 10-day holiday? It's a question Japan is having to answer. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Paige Reynolds, Augustin Machelari, and Daniel Bache. Welcome all. And we will start here in the UK, where a theme of the week has been the spectacle of political parties preparing and or bracing themselves for the European parliamentary elections that the UK was never supposed to have. It being now nearly three years, though it seems like longer, since the UK voted to leave the EU. Ironically, this may mean that for the first time ever, UK voters pay any attention at all to it. EU election. Cynical suspicions that between now and polling day on May 23rd lies an absurd and undignified circus of ludicrous Yahoo candidates perching on extremely rickety platforms have thus far been abundantly confirmed. Um, First of all, I I think I'm right in saying, if I've done the maths right, only two of us here are qualified to stand as candidates uh, in this election. That's you, Augustine, and you, Paige. Either of you tempted? I mean, everybody else is having a lash. Um, I I wasn't tempted, but I've I've recently... as of today, just looked up uh, what the benefits might be or what and, the salaries. And listeners, when she says uh, recently, I can assure you she means in the last three minutes, just before we came on air. And I am, I'm, I'm gutted. I didn't go for it, honestly. So annually, you get about well, you get seven thousand nine hundred and fifty-seven euro per month. Not bad salary, and that's pretty good as well because you get paid in euros. So if the pounds weak, you're doing well. You get four thousand two hundred ninety-nine uh, pound uh, euro as office expenses. Decent. Per year, you get €4,243 travel allowance and 24 reimbursed uh, return journeys home. And, and that, Decent. that would be in the posh seats as well. You'd imagine. You'd imagine. Yeah. Um, and you get €300 a day subsistence, so for just food, hotels, whatnot. It would That's re- mad. I mean, it would require imagination anywhere but Switzerland to actually go through 300 euros on food in a day, whereas in, in Switzerland, of course, that barely pays for a slice of pizza. But, 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 but in, in it's just Stra- a cheese sandwich. <laughs> exactly. In Strasbourg or Brussels, you, yeah. could, you could have a lot of fun on 300 euros. Like more free. How many helpings of more free? Uh, that, buys you a lot of chi- it, buys you, it buys you a lot of <laughs> chips with mayonnaise on it. Do you think there's something a little bit Brexity sitting around commenting on how much MEPs get paid? <laughs> I'm, 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 embra- I'm, 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 I'm embracing the spirit of the times. It's, it's the will of the people, Augustine. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Um, apparently. Um, on the subject of the, the will of the people, are we surprised to see that the new Brexit party um, is leading the polls? Hilariously? No. And long may they... He says. <laughs> he says completely. I was getting a bit Brexity. No, does, just, does anybody know where the trapdoor lever is under um, this table? It's an ejector seat button. It's just over here. Um, I'm more than happy to show my working on this one. Uh, there's a serious flaw in the Remain Party's kind of 
uh, campaigning, which is that they haven't seen fit to draw any kind of cross-party cooperative deals together. So they're all going to be pitted against one another. The vote will be divided, which will negatively impact uh, on Remain. Brexit party, by contrast, while it may be peopled with candidates drawn from the kind of loony fringe of the Brexiteer kind of upper crust elite, like the extravagantly named Anunziata Rees-Mogg, who is, of course, Jacob's sister, at least they're not actual racists and fascists, which is what you get in the UKIP parties, where we have people like Tommy Robinson, we have uh, Carl Benjamin, who's better known by his kind of online handle of uh, Sargon Sargon of Akkad. He's a really leading sort of neo-fascist, alt-right conspiracy theorist and, you know, unfortunately has got the ability to mobilise quite a lot of disaffected nerds. And if we're looking at it, you know, as we have been, I think, for a while, which is what is the least bad outcome rather than what is the best outcome, Mm -hmm. the least bad thing would be Anunziata over Carl Benjamin Sargon of Akkad. Uh, I would not be willing to bet heavily on the Brexit Party's self-established reputation as being a dingbat-free zone lasting quite all the way till May 23rd or even, frankly, till about this time on Monday. Sure, uh, I quite agree with that. I just, um, you know, looking at it dispassionately... Um, Paige, does it strike you that the Remain-leaning parties, of whom there are at least two, uh, the alleged Change UK, this new centrist faction, and the Liberal Democrats, who have been explicitly stopped Brexit, it's a bad idea, um, are they fumbling it as badly as it looks like they're fumbling it? Or, Or is it just the case that with EU elections in this country by and large the only people who ever care enough to vote in them are people who don't like the EU. Well, I think that's certainly true. If you look at the 2014 elections, um, the uh, party who came top was UKIP winning 24 seats. So I think this is uh, definitely kind of a historic thing in terms of who who ends up voting. And like Augustine referenced, unfortunately, the Remain parties haven't managed to form um, any kind of alliance. I think Change UK like the idea that they're this brand new party, they don't have the baggage of any of the other Remain parties and they don't seem very willing to cooperate on that front um uh, you know, I think Vince Cable uh, was disappointed that um, Change UK. There was a leaked document where Change UK said they s- sought to win over Liberal Democrat supporters. So they're actually trying to uh, not only uh, not merge, but actually sort of completely pitted against each other in terms of, of voting base as well. So yeah, I, I, I think they are they are fumbling a little bit. Um, and also, I guess as the sort of likelihood of second referendum and Brexit not happening gets sort of, I suppose, weaker and weaker. They seem a little bit, I don't know, they don't have as much to fall back on. As Brexit, as Brexit, she's called Paige. As Paige Paige was just saying. I'm sure there are a generation of children being born. Yeah, uh, (laughs) they are, but 18 years away from uh, electoral maturity. Um, As Paige was saying, you know, the traditionally the most mobilized uh, part of the electorate is the anti-EU ones because they're the ones who have an active interest in the kind of mechanics of the EU and in dismantling the UK's relationship to it. And that's kind of the great tragedy of Brexit, which is that at no point has the British public ever really meaningfully engaged with the European Parliament. Um, I was looking up, I was just looking some stuff up before we came on, but it really struck me that in 1979, the year of the first EU elections, turnout in Belgium was 91.36%. 
turnout in the UK was 32.35%. The Belgians, as we may come to shortly, I believe have a compulsory vote. I don't know off the top of my uh, head. I, mean, that would, I don't know off the top of my head if they did in 1979. That would explain a lot. But I think, you know, <laughs> the fact is that it had a very nice little um, infographic on it, this website. And it showed that the UK has consistently fallen around 10% below the EU average for voter turnout, which just shows how detached the British public is from uh, from from the European Parliament. Had they been more engaged, they might maybe have known that by voting they had an input and could express what has become kind of fetishised as a type of sovereignty or democratic engagement or whatever you want to call it. But they haven't, they didn't, and now we're going to have Sargon of Akkad and Anunziata Rees-Mogg. Well, moving seamlessly along on the subject of elections, <laughs> Spain is having one on Sunday, which is in and of itself not news. This will be Spain's third election in less than four years. Honestly, make your minds up. Uh, what we will shortly discuss is Spain's choice of election day. Like most countries which have elections, Spain holds them at the weekend, but others do not. The United States presidential elections are held on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, Canada on the third Monday of October and the United Kingdom holds them on Thursdays. Um, Daniel, at this mm. point, speak for your people. Um, why do you, if your parliament runs its full course, have an election on the third Monday of October? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think because it's it follows the American model of having those set election terms. Now, often... That doesn't happen if the government decides to dissolve parliament and call an election, uh, which quite often happens in recent years. Um, but that is just the standard, and it, it seems to work the best to have it on, on a fixed day. Is it a weird thing to have them on a weekday at all? The producer of this program, Tom Hall, has a theory that it is done deliberately by the ruling class overlords of the United Kingdom to disenfranchise uh, the working classes who are, of course, busy toiling in their factories and therefore cannot get out and vote. I think that's a really great point. I mean, if we look at the US, where they vote, did you say on Tuesdays? Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. um, it's got a pretty nicely established track record of voter suppression over there, hasn't Indeed it? Indeed so. You know, the salient example at the moment is the disenfranchisement of felons, which uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has been banging the drum about. Generally, that means disenfranchisement of African-Americans, given that they're five times more likely to be incarcerated than white Americans. <laughs> Um, there's that grotesque figure that one in three African Americans, African American males, I should say, born around now, will go to prison over the course of their lifetime. You know, we've also got we. They also have gerrymandering. They have messing with access to polling stations. They have voter ID laws, and they purge the voting register. Both of those last two are kind of done in the name of uh, preventing voter fraud, which it should kind of be recognised as basically a non-existent crime. So. Do they hold elections on a weekday to suppress the votes of the working man and woman? Yeah, I reckon <laughs> they do. Well, in, in, in Australia, my country, we have arrived at what I think is a sensible solution two ways up. One is that we hold elections on Saturdays, uh, in recent years especially, often accompanied by barbecues at the polling station, offering <laughs> up what have become known as democracy sausages. Uh, and, and also the vote in Australia, as it is in a few other jurisdictions, is compulsory. Is that a good idea, Paige? To make voting compulsory? Yeah. We were, we were talking about this upstairs, as you we might were. imagine. You should, have, you should have saved it for the programme. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a good idea to make voting compulsory? I mean, 
in one sense, it, it makes it makes a lot of sense. You know, we have in in democratic societies, we have other duties. For instance, like jury service, um, whereby you just have to do it kind of for the sense of mm-hmm. public good. Um, however, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure whether how much that would really increase um, you know, the amount of spoiler votes or people kind of just randomly voting because they don't actively take an interest in politics anyway or how it this, might... This is known in Australia as the donkey vote. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, it has a name. It, it, it does. It's because we have a preferential system as well where you number the candidates from one to whatever. The donkey vote is held to be the person who just writes one, two, three, four, five down the side of the ballot. Okay, yeah. Well, it, it might increase chances of that and plus I think if you're already if you already feel a little negatively towards democracy the idea of being forced to do something I don't but you, you're allowed to spoil your ballot paper you just have to actually just turn up and make sure that your name has been ticked off you can then then go into the mm. box with your ballot paper and draw whatever you like on it I perhaps mean, you can, you can, and and those votes get counted. I mean, they don't get counted according to whatever specific obscenity was written on them, <laughs> but they are they are recorded as informal votes. Uh, out of interest, when when did it become compulsory? Uh, if my memory serves, it always has always been. Has. I, I, so I wonder, I wonder how that changes, just how people campaign and whether it enables politicians to focus more on policies as opposed to just getting people to the ballot. Do you know what I mean? Maybe well, it's a good thing. The, in the that argument, respect. which I will throw to you, Daniel, in mm. favour of the compulsory vote is partly it's a culture of fostering civic engagement of the sort of thing Paige was talking about there. But also there is a suggestion that it does mitigate against the rise of extremist and fringe and crackpot parties because, because everybody has to get out and vote and because most people aren't extremists or crackpots uh, whose votes do tend to drift towards the middle ground, it it builds in a certain stability. I think so. I, I don't know about whether it, you know, these crackpots are, are going to have a better, a, a better say at the polls uh, because of that. But I think when you when you bring out um, more people, and if you were to institute um, mandatory voting, I think it it would just. Uh, you know, relieve so many issues in our society. And one is that people would maybe complain less. The people that don't vote are always the ones that complain the loudest. Well, indeed. Uh, We will take a short break now, slightly earlier than usual, because we do have to leave time to discuss the in-office condiment war, which is roiling the building and has been all week. It's a big news day. Um, You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Daniel Bates, Augustin Machilari and Paige Reynolds. Coming up next, however, inevitably, people have had ideas for rebuilding Notre Dame. What's the secret to a happy life? Join us in June in Madrid for Monocle's fifth annual Quality of Life Conference to find out. We'll be asking the important questions and proffering a few unexpected answers on everything from the future of our cities to deft design, from hospitality to the finer things in life. You'll find counsel from the food players laying the table for success, the entrepreneurs we're backing, and plenty of lessons, scoops and insights gleaned in the Spanish capital and beyond. The Monocle Quality of Life Conference takes place in Madrid from the 27th to the 29th of June. And there's more good news if you're a Monocle subscriber. You get a 10% discount. Head to conference.monocle.com now and watch the film from last year's event and buy your ticket for this year's edition. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world.
You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Daniel Bates, Augustin Machilari and Paige Reynolds. And let's look now at Paris. The fire that gutted Notre Dame Cathedral earlier this month was by any measure a disaster. However, it might be about to get worse. France's Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe, has announced a competition for ideas about replacing Notre Dame's roof and spire. And early indications are that people are going to insist on submitting ideas other than it was fine as it was, so let's aim for something like that. One does designer, for example, has proposed commemorating a phoenix-like revival by replacing the spire with a sort of frozen flame, which looks in the computer sketches at least like a lopsided bronze meringue. Um, Have any of the ideas, and I'm just putting this out to the table, uh, any of the ideas thus far floated looked to you like they might be described as non-terrible? The only one that looks normal on here is the glass ceiling one, and I still think I, it's a bad idea. I, I don't mind the glass ceiling one so much. I, I, I think that the problem with all of the ideas, and I guess this is why we thought it was interesting to, to discuss it anyway, is that there seems to be such a push to... Um, to really uh, do something really showy and do something that really like commemorates um, the actual sort of uh, the the accident, the tragedy that happened as well. I mean, I don't. I just feel like they're very ostentatious, and for me anyway, I think of course you're not. You shouldn't try to replicate it because actually the building is such a mismatch of um, of sort of centuries Indeed. anyway. Well, you, you make an um, interesting point. This idea that like Notre Dame Cathedral just doesn't draw enough attention to itself. Yeah, I, I, I think it's definitely a standout land, landmark as it is. And yeah, a lot of these ideas don't seem to be, um, yeah, seem to be a bit too ostentatious for my taste. It doesn't look like they've been made with that much consideration of legacy and posterity, does it? I mean, I think the, about... the, these at this early stage may not be yeah. serious ideas so much as opportunist architects attempting to attract attention to themselves. We do have to consider that possibility. No, I refuse to. I think they're absolutely serious. <laughs> um, I was thinking about Monument in uh, City, which commemorates the Great Fire of 1666, um, which is very plain, dowdy. Think about what it'd be like if they built it now. Probably be made out of well, they they again they could, they could build futuristic. A, a, a massive fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and much eternally as, burning, as has been suggested in 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 one of these notions, which is the big bronze dropped meringue one. I mean, as a general rule, what what should they do? Should they just try to rebuild it much as it was, or does that just end up looking gauche as well? I think you have to in in this sense because of the history of the building and how much attention it does get. This isn't an option or this isn't an opportunity to to recreate a neighborhood or or create a new vision like the Pompidou and the Eiffel Tower and other controversial things, La Défense, um, or say even the 9-11 memorial in in New York New York City. This isn't an opportunity to to do that. This is this is something that France has to do to to celebrate its its heritage, and I think they have to make it look as original as possible. I actually disagree with that. I think mm. that um, you know it was a late edition, right? It's not we've mm. established. It is a mishmash of different yeah. kind of periods, and buildings do develop, I suppose, in a way kind of organically over time. The idea that everything should be immaculately maintained for posterity is a very recent idea. Mm. It's kind of, in the idea sense, a bit of a neologism. There's no historical record of that. People have traditionally kind of run riot across the historical landscape, pulling down Stonehenge, putting it back up, putting it in a different shape, all of these things. And now we have it as it is, and that kind of manifests some sort of quote-unquote authenticity. 
but really, you know, you could rebuild it the same. You could make a very sensitive. I mean, obviously, these proposals are absolutely <laughs> balmy. But, for the Christmas ball one, that one looks. Oh, no, that, that one's one. quite fetching. But like, you could do something sensitive. You could get someone who's really great to do something really thoughtful mm. to, and bring it. You know, bring it into the world. Make make it look like it kind of is in use. Is a building. And also kind of agreeing with Org, even in a pragmatic sense, we don't really have the same access to the same materials. We don't have access to the same type of craftsmanship as we had at that time. And also, you know, we've seen kind of how the building of that spire did kind of lend itself to this tragedy. And so isn't the priority, I suppose, to try and um, make it kind of as safe and and maybe as resilient as possible um, in the future, not just kind of exactly as it were. Okay, well, let's take a look at Japan, which is about to embark on a 10-day holiday to observe the abdication of Emperor Akihito and the ascent to the chrysanthemum throne of Crown Prince Naruhito. The people of Japan may be looking forward to this break with more bewilderment than anticipation. Japan's is a famously workaholic culture in which companies often actually experience difficulty persuading employees to take their allotted time off. Um, This is, we should make clear, it is a a full-blown 10-day ban holiday the stock market will close it it's 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 a pretty big deal is it is it i was wondering is it as mad as it sounds or just a complete or is there something to be said for maybe other countries around the world just saying yeah halfway through the year everyone just have a week off I think it, particularly in Japan, as you were just sort of saying, uh, because of the, the culture there, which does seem to be very much a workaholic culture. And in fact, they they don't take um, the leave days. Uh, I think there was a report out in December and they get uh, 20 annual leave days and they, they usually take uh, 10 of them. Um, they, it's what's called one of the lowest countries for actually uptake of paid annual leave anyway. So I think maybe for Japan, this is perhaps perhaps is a good idea. What I found interesting, actually, um, when I was looking into this specific holiday and why it was 10 days long. Um, It's not actually that it's a 10-day holiday. It's that there's a law in Japan um, that if you have... um uh, a working day that's sandwiched by two national holiday days, that working day becomes a national holiday day. So it's just the way in which the national holidays fell, it meant that the others also had to be national holiday days. I, I think I would spend holiday my entire days. holiday trying to understand how that system actually works. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like a few years ago when I think there was a royal wedding and it was worked <clears throat> out that with like the judicious application of leave, you only had to take three days holiday to get like 21 days off on the trot because <laughs> there were so many i don't know if you remember that yeah but, and i was pipped at my old job but, but, but do holidays have the same meaning that they used to have now that increasing numbers of people certainly in in this country not necessarily in japan don't really work traditional nine to five jobs i mean i i speak as a nominal freelancer and it was it wasn't the case this year but it has happened that i have woken up on good fridays sent off a whole bunch of work-related emails and at lunchtime found myself thinking, where is everybody? Why is no one getting back to me? And then realised, oh yeah, it's Easter. Um, I don't want to kind of puncture your solipsistic bubble, but most it was, people it was, are still on nine yeah. to five. It was, it, was about time, it, was, it was about time somebody did. But, uh, my, my, but, but, my, my, but my point is, but inc- I mean, I'd say most people are, but yeah. increasing numbers of people are not. Yeah, I mean, I guess what it's, when the tipping point happens and more people aren't than are, then maybe we'll have to reconsider. But at the moment, you know, all the public servants, 
Uh, I know. I, I think we'd all love to have a ten-day bank holiday, but radio. I mean, doesn't we, I was about to say holidays. we wouldn't get it anyway. Um, so. But I, you know, as a rule, I think I think it's good. I mean, I think grouching we, we, about we, it. We could just put this show on repeat. Yeah. On a loop. <laughs> hey, how, how many times could you listen to the same episode of Midori House? Four in, or five. In, ten, in, 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 in house in, once. Yeah, but in in in, in a ten-day holiday. Every time someone listens, they'll get something else from it. Yeah, you yeah. you you, you, and you could the spend nuances. you could spend a 10-day bank holiday listening to this episode 480 times. Yeah, then... Someone will take up that challenge. <laughs> I, I, I think what Fiona put in today's Monocle Minute was, was quite good while everyone's thinking of this is going to be chaotic for the way uh, you know a modern economy and a modern city functions, say if you're in the center of Tokyo. It might be a, a good collective thing if as a society we just take a big breath, a big pause, and do nothing. It kind of no, sounds I, like Southern Europe in August where yeah, I, nothing is happening <laughs> anyways. I, I genuinely quite like the idea in the, it, until the advent of cable and satellite television in Iceland there was one day a week, I think on Tuesdays, there was just no television. It was there was none. People had to think of something else to do with their time. I'm I'm quite in favour of it. But that said, I can also remember how boring Sundays in Canberra used to be when I was a kid. So now I don't know what I think. Um, Are we going to reflect on that? Exactly. Not this when I was a boy. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, Daniel, you may well wish we had reflected on that because, of course, this this is the point at the program at which we we do need to bring the argument that has been roiling the building all day. Oh God. Um, into the ambit of our listeners, and there was a discussion at the editorial conference this morning. I am told I was not there. That that degenerated into unseemly rowing over what is and is not a condiment. And I believe, Daniel, or it has been reported to yeah. me by people whose word I trust, that you attempted to advocate that peanut butter is a condiment. <laughs> so my question to you, Daniel Bache, if that is your real name, is are you insane? So I did some research for this show. <laughs> and it was in so looking up... First time for everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was in looking up the difference between spread... And condiment. And the definition of a condiment is that it enhances the flavor of something. And this all stems from me saying that mayonnaise is a useless condiment. I said this a few weeks ago. And that peanut butter is the only thing we, worth we, putting we have, on we everything. Have, we have Belgian colleagues who would regard that as fighting talk. Yeah, well... But they may be, I just wa can't, I, I don't, they may I don't, be waiting for you in the car park. Pages about I, just to don't, I, just, I don't know in what world peanut butter... Is a condiment. I think it's just a, I mean? a world where you've misunderstood what a condiment is. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, it's a, maybe, maybe it's a language thing. translation. Yes. Canadians. I'm not know. saying it's a condiment. It's definitely a spread, but it's just the only thing worth putting oh, on. To put I it mean. on Do chips. Well, no, but you could put it on whatever you, whatever you See, want I to think, put it on. I think that's actually quite a good definition of a condiment. Would, yeah. you, Can you, would you put it on chips? But you don't put, like, what else is a condiment? You Mustard, know? ketchup, HP sauce, mayonnaise. Maybe even, maybe even vinegar, no, Liam, Perrin, Liam Perrins. Mm, also not. <laughs> no, that, no <laughs> Liam Perrins is definitely a condiment. It's not. Yeah, it is. You know what? In Canada, we have peanut butter and we have maple syrup. And you can put those on anything in my book. Yeah, That's I guess hideous. you do have maple syrup on... Bacon. You know what? I will say my one great contribution curds. at Monocle in the past year and a bit is getting peanut butter on the the breakfast menu here. Smooth though, not crunchy. Oh, no. Smooth. That's the other thing. <laughs> How can you have I don't smooth? choose. I just said peanut butter, not which one you crime. order. Which Honestly, which would you save if you could save any condiment? I'd save mustard. I'd save mayonnaise, any day of the week. What? I love it. I love it. I don't care. I love it. 
American yellow American like ballpark mustard. You can uh, have any yeah. mustard. I mean, yeah, I'd be yeah. Dijon, English. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to ask in greater detail because I realise I probably jumped into this item about two minutes early, frankly, and we've still got ninety <gasps> seconds to fill. Uh, this 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 mayonnaise thing here, Paige. How how can you possibly? I mean, seriously, it's a, it's a it's a it's a non thing. I do, I just don't I don't get. That. I just think it's a it's a personal taste thing, isn't it? But it, it doesn't it doesn't. Um, my argument would be as well as a condiment being something you put on other things. It should have a certain adhesive quality. Which mayonnaise does not? Oh, mayonnaise definitely does. It depends whether you keep it in the fridge or the cupboard. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think we, you have to keep it in the fridge. We even, <laughs> Once opened, yeah. We haven't even talked about Marmite and Vegemite, which someone, someone still has to spreads. explain to me. Spreads. Uh, they're spreads, but I think we don't live in a world of wartime rations anymore, so what's the point of them? That's my question. Ooh, Marmite's delicious. Daniel, are you asking what the point of Vegemite is? <laughs> I think so. You you realise who you're talking to? Paige, here. get and, that and, bottle and, out of his and, reach, and, quick. And, and more to the point, where that person you're talking to comes from? I, I'm the furthest seat away from you, and directly across in your crosshairs, though. Um, and yeah, just just so we're clear on this page, because I knew, know where you and Augustine oh, were fine. about to go. Relish. I know where you were about Jesus. to go with this. A Vegemite is better than Marmite. It just is. No, it's not. Um, I actually just like both of them the same. I'm not sure which I'm not sure which is worse. <laughs> I know as as a New Zealander I should have an opinion but Anyway, and probably mercifully, that does bring us to the end of today's show. <laughs> Paige Reynolds, Augustin Machilari and Daniel Bates, thank you all for joining us and especially for padding out that last item. Uh, today's show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Nick Moniz. Our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Marcus Hippie. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend.